My name is Adam Zadlowski. Uh, as Jim said, I am a me member of Covenant Life Church, a former intern there, and uh, I am currently at seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm a father of two, a boy and a girl, and a husband uh, to a wonderful wife who helped a lot in uh, caring for the kids while I prepared this sermon. It is a joy to be with you all today. I'm sure you heard this uh, from uh, Justin when he was here not too long ago, but Covenant Life loves this church. We pray for you regularly, and I am personally so encouraged by the faithfulness and love you have displayed to the city of St. Petersburg, as well as so grateful that you had invited me here today. So before we look at the Word of God, let's go to our Lord in prayer, uh, and we will jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son. Lord, we just ask that as we open your Word that you reveal truths uh, by your Spirit that I could never express with mere words. Help the words written to change our lives, to mark a moment where we repent and rely and look at the grace that you have provided for us. Lord, help it to permeate our day, our week, and our lives. Lord, we just thank you for all that you have given and the grace that you have shown to your church and your people. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, I think it would be good, before we get into the passages today, to take a minute to remember where we are in Luke at this point. Currently, Luke is describing Christ's final journey to Jerusalem, where he will be met with wrongful imprisonment, false accusations, and be unjustly sentenced to death on the cross. So far on this journey, Luke has described some of the teachings of Christ that he has passed on to his disciples. The passage before this is the one in which Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray by giving them a model of what the Lord's Prayer is looks like. And the passage before that describes the events of Martha and Mary, where Mary simply sits at the Lord's feet and listens to his teachings. Jesus is no longer speaking in private with his disciples. No, he is in the public square here in our passage today. He is working a miracle for what we read is a large crowd of people. The word used for crowd in this passage is actually in the plural form. Uh, implying that Luke intended to communicate to his readers that there are actually multiple groups within this crowds. There's crowds among crowds. Three groups are mentioned specifically in this text, which we will label as the faithful, the slanderers, and the doubters. So let's open the word of God together and read starting in verse 14, which says this. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Three realities that are apparent to us right off the bat. One, demons are real. Demons sometimes afflict people. And Jesus rules over and casts out demons. We do not have time to get into a large theological treatise on what the Bible teaches about demons, but those three things will be enough for us to understand this passage today. 
in this verse, Jesus is casting out a demon that was causing a man to be mute. Uh, That is, he was unable to speak. However, the afflictions of this man that he was struggling with was likely, likely did not stop at simply not being able to talk. It was more likely that he was be very, uh, very debilitated, having difficulty moving, and was possibly even blind as well, as the parallel passage that we find in Matthew 12 teaches us. It is clear to the reader and to the crowd that this was no mere parlor trick. All who witnessed this event, even among the doubters and slanderers, realized that a miracle had taken place. There was an outward, visible change from this man. And at the end of verse 14, it says that the one group in the crowd marveled. This Greek word here for marveled, thalmazo, literally means to be astonished out of one's senses, completely awestruck. It is to look at what is happening before one's eyes and regard it with amazement. The word also here even has a suggestion of beginning to think about what is taking place in front of your eyes, what is happening before you. In other words, some people were so amazed by what God and what Jesus had done in this miracle that they began to wonder to to themselves, "What, what does this mean? Who is this man? How does he do these miraculous works? Perhaps they even ask themselves questions like, does this mean the kingdom of God is at hand? Does this mean the promises God has made are coming to fruition? As we continue through the text, it will be easy for us to forget about this faithful group inside the crowd, since Jesus never addresses them directly. But these men and women saw the great power of God before them, and they were in awe of what they saw. Let us remember to emulate them whenever we are confronted with the power and mercy of God in our lives. Let us stand in awe and think about the glory of God and his mercies rather than be doubtful or unbelieving in our thoughts. Unfortunately, while there were some who saw Christ's work as a miracle and simply were in awe, there were also many who witnessed what was so clearly a work of God and doubted. These two groups that are seen in this passage, we will call the slanderers and doubters. This first group levels a blasphemous accusation towards Jesus by claiming that he is displaying the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, as we read in verse 15. It says, but some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While the second group in this crowd did not believe this miracle had been a miracle from God at all. Uh, So they were not sure. They demanded another sign to be done for, for them. As it says in verse 16, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. While the demand for a sign may be less antagonistic, it is no less offensive to the power that Jesus has displayed. Only a a single sign was required of a prophet to show what he says is of God. Yet Jesus, at this point, had done many miracles. People knew his name among all of Judea. By this time, 
and the people still were asking for more. Seeking is a major theme in Luke. In fact, the word seek is found 26 times in Luke. And while it is sometimes seen in a positive context, it is usually used in a negative sense, for it implies dissatisfaction or discontentment with the signs given to the people of Israel. It is with this very temptation that Satan tempts Jesus the third time by bringing him to the top of the temple in order that he might jump off and be saved by angels in Luke 4, 9 through 12. A demand for a sign is itself a sign of unbelief. Now it is interesting that Jesus' miracles are not denied in this passage, but instead an attempt is made to discredit him by attributing his power to Satan or to doubt him by saying, well, if he can do one more sign, then, then I'll believe. Often we hear people say things like this, uh, when, that when they, if they see a miracle, if they could ever witness a miracle happen before their very eyes, then, then they would believe in God. Then I will turn to God in belief and faith. But this passage sh- shows us that even in the face of a miracle, most people are going to find some way to discredit or doubt what they saw. In the following verse, Jesus responds to both groups, beginning with the first, who claim that he was using the power of the prince of demons in order to cast out demons. Perhaps, like me, you were confused by this title, Beelzebul, that this group uses to slander Jesus. Uh, However, at the time, this would have been a common phrase used referring to Satan himself. This can also easily be deduced by Christ's response in following the following verses as he identifies this title directly with Satan. In fact, the title comes from the combining of two ancient Hebrew words, uh, the first being for Baal uh, and the second being for dwelling. Baal, if you remember your Old Testament history, was the chief antagonist in much of Israel's history. So much so that they began at some point to use his name interchangeably with Satan's. Literally translated, Beelzebul means household or dynasty of Baal. And in this case, the household of Satan. The crowd is accusing Jesus here of being of that household, of using the power of that dynasty. Jesus' response to this blasphemous accusation is marked by simplicity and logic. Now, let's take notice that he does not immediately rebuke them or get angry from this obvious slander against him and ultimately God, but he takes this opportunity to show mercy and to teach them the errors of their logic. Let's just take a moment to reflect on that. Jesus shows mercy to these two groups by offering a rebuttal to their remarks. He could have just simply rebuked them and judged them for calling him Satan, for blaspheming the work and power of God. He could have even left them in their ignorance without even graciously giving them the truth. Yet instead, he gives them something to think about. He gives them an opportunity to repent and churn from their crooked and evil ways of thinking. Friends, this is a merciful God 
that we serve. For even in the face of belligerent and aggressive verbal attacks, God gently reveals to us the errors of our ways. Now, picking up in verse 17, we read Jesus' response says this, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a, ha- and a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. The logic of this statement is fairly obvious. If Satan, Satan is divided against himself by casting out his own, his kingdom could not stand. Therefore, it would, make, it would not make sense for the power that Christ is using to cast out these demons to come from Satan. However, let's just say for the sake of argument, even if one tries to make the claim that Jesus and Satan somehow could have colluded with each other in order to give Jesus credibility amongst the Jews uh, so that he could deceive Israel. It would not make sense when taking into account the entirety of Jesus' ministry. If Jesus just cast this one demon out, then perhaps one could make that argument, but Jesus has cast many demons out at this point and has actively been preaching that the kingdom of Satan has been overthrown. Just one chapter before this, after the 72 returned from their mission, Jesus proclaims in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It is clear to all that the ministry of Jesus is bent entirely against the will and power of Satan. So if it was by the power of Satan that he did these great works, it would be a kingdom that is simply destroying itself. This is what Jesus is trying to help them see. Christ then continues by calling out another one of their, illo- one of their logical inconsistencies in verse 19, saying, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In this verse, it is likely that Jesus is referring to uh, Jewish exorcists of the day. There's some kind of debate over this, but uh, he is likely, he's just showing him them here that the logical inconsistency of saying that these Jewish exorcists that are currently uh, casting demons out among them and they're claiming that they're from God and people are accepting that these works are from God, you cannot say that they are doing it by God, but Jesus is doing it by Satan. Lastly, Christ shows them that their desire to deny the coming kingdom of God is folly. Look at verse 20 with me. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This phrase, the finger of God, would have been familiar to the Jews. In the Old Testament, the phrase was used to describe the power of heaven on earth. For example, in Exodus 8:19, we read that after attempting to replicate the plague of the gnats, Pharaoh's magicians tell him that this is the finger of God. They were amazed by this plague. The power of God is being displayed here. The kingdom of God is being proclaimed. Yet due to pride and fear, this group of Jews could not accept what their eyes told them. Now Luke does not tell us if 
these were Pharisees that were leveling this accusation against him. But it is likely, based on Christ's response and the parallel passage we find in Matthew 12, that these were people that saw themselves as religious elites. And they were threatened by the message that Jesus was preaching. Particularly, they were threatened by the power Jesus was displaying. As religious leaders and pious men, they had their own idea of what the kingdom of God on earth was supposed to look like and how the Messiah was supposed to act. If Jesus was the Messiah, the one who was to establish God's kingdom on earth, then he wouldn't be healing the sick, they would say. He wouldn't be casting out demons or serving sinners. He would be coming to conquer and liberate the Jews from their Roman oppressors. Perhaps they even believe he was to come and give them riches for their hard work of following the law of God. The irony, though, is that Jesus did not come to conquer. Did, the irony is that Jesus did come to conquer. He did come to liberate both the Jews and Gentiles from the power of Satan, from the powers of the spiritual realm. While trying to fit Jesus in their preconceived box, the religious leaders missed what the kingdom, the coming kingdom, was truly about. To show them this, Jesus gives them two short parables to reveal both their blindness and to show that their, their ways of relying on the works and rituals of man will only bring pain and destruction. The first parable Jesus gives says this in verses 21 to 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when another, stronger than he, attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. In the parable, the strong man, man is meant to represent Satan and the dominion and power that he has held over the world since mankind first believed the lies and sinned, the lies of Satan and sinned against God. But the stronger man, the one who overcomes and casts out the strong man, it is God himself come to establish his kingdom on earth. This is what Christ came to do, and this is what he is trying to show these unbelievers. He then concludes this parable with a strong warning in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here, we clearly see the exclusivity of Christ on display. Not only this, but we even see a juxtaposition here as it bookends this short parable. Jesus is dispelling the myth of neutrality. There is no neutral stance when it comes to the kingdom of God. You are either for God or you are against him. It is a very simple verse to understand, yet a very difficult one to accept. How often do you hear people speak of Christianity as if it would be more palatable, more acceptable, if we taught there were multiple ways to heaven, many paths to God? But the teachings of Jesus are clear. John 14, 6 tells us, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. You are either for the kingdom of Christ or you are against his kingdom and against his ministry. You either gather with Christ to live with him forever in glorified perfection 
or you scatter from him, condemned to an eternity of seeking a small drop of comfort in the desert wastelands of God's righteous wrath. Friends, if you are a Christian, let this truth be the lifeblood of your daily walk with the Lord. Let it warm your soul that Jesus has promised to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. But if you are not a Christian here today, I plead with you that you will hear the truths of Jesus' words and heed them. I pray that you will turn from your sins and to Christ. That you would be gathered rather than scattered. But Jesus has one more parable of warning for this group of slandering individuals. Look with me in verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter the dwell and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This may seem like a strange or confusing parable to many of you, but if we remember the context of this passage, it is clear why Christ is giving them this parable. While the exorcism of a demon is still fresh in their minds, Christ uses this imagery to give us a common spiritual truth. That is, many who will hear the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, will react positively at first. They will be like the seed that is dropped in the shallow soil that sprouts quickly but wilts under the sun since it did not have deep roots. Christ is warning his listeners that a response to his message that results in merely external change is not enough. Peter puts it like this in 2 Peter 2, 20-22. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in their sins and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit, and the sow, sow often washes herself, returns, often, after washing herself, returns to the wallow in the mire. It is not enough to go to church, hear a sermon, feel bad about yourself because of your sin, and try to go do better next time. In fact, the parable of Peter tells us that to do these kinds of outward religious actions opens our lives up to even greater evil than before. Relying on external actions, our perceived goodness, will only lead to a toilsome and pain-ridden life marked by agony. No, we must have a changed heart. We must submit our lives wholly to Christ and be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Said another way, the only way to defeat inner evil is not of your own work, but of the work of God. Self-reformation without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, as revealed by the light of the gospel, is fatal. So, let's now transition into the second portion of this passage, where we see that 
the light of the gospel is revealed. I think I failed to mention in the beginning that we have two points this morning. Uh, the first, in that first portion was the kingdom of God is proclaimed. We see that Jesus is proclaiming his kingdom on earth by uh, casting out Satan uh, and helping others see that the kingdom has arrived. Our second point here tells us that the light of the gospel is revealed through Jesus. The text continues in verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Luke gives us a unique account here, as no other gospel records this interaction with the woman in the crowd. While it may feel like these verses are somewhat out of place, these two verses are the glue that holds Jesus' response to these two groups together. Remember, so far he has addressed the people who called him Beelzebul. Now he is about to address the people who called for another sign. In verse 27, we read that a woman in the crowd cries out a blessing. It is likely that this blessing was a somewhat common rhetorical statement of the time. Contrary to how it may sound, the purpose of it was to actually bless the child of the woman more so than the woman herself. Though it was a dual blessing, giving both honor to the mother, but also even more honor to the one of whom she bore. In fact, it is possible that this is why Mary in the Magnificat says that from now all generations, all generations from now will call me blessed, Luke 148, as she would have been familiar with this blessing bestowed on great men and prophets. It is important that we understand this lest we fall victim to our cultural biases and fear, cultural biases and fear that this woman is somehow a proponent of some kind of veneration of Mary. There is simply no evidence of this from the text, nor is there any evidence contextually as well, the historical context. Next, we see Jesus' reply, which your translation might say, but he said, blessed rather, in the ESV, or but he said, on the contrary, NASB. This may make you think that Jesus is contradicting what the woman said, or perhaps even rebuking her for her blessing. However, in the Greek, this is a rare phrase, which is not seen very often, but it actually should read as yes, but also. Jesus is saying, yes, it is good to bless me and even Mary, but also blessed is the one who hears the word of God and keeps it. Jesus, is, Jesus uses this opportunity to append her statement and teach Teach the crowd that the way of the blessed is marked by the hearing and doing of the word of God. Do not miss the importance of this verse. For in the midst of Jesus' discussion on deep spiritual truths and signs that are being given to fulfill prophecies of old, Jesus reminds his listeners to rest on the word of God, to rely on it, to seek guidance from it. In fact, the word used here that we translate as keep literally means to preserve by having an eye on, 
to be intently, intensely focused on. Think of the uninterrupted vigilance of the shepherds who guard their flocks. This is the kind of mind and devotion Jesus is saying we should have toward the word of God. After this, he now begins to address the second group in the crowd. Continuing in verse 29, he says, it says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men in Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Notice that Luke records that the crowds were actually increasing, and this seems to be when Jesus decides to address those in the crowd who are seeking another side. Jesus is never trying to win any popularity contests. He is never trying to create some sort of spectacle for the pe people to simply enjoy and walk away happy. No, he is always trying to reveal to them the truth of the kingdom of God visible on earth and point them to the truths of the gospel. And whenever that entails rebuke or condemnation, he never shies away from it. It is so obvious that he is not trying to tickle the ears of his listeners as he says right at the beginning, this generation is an evil generation. The crowds sought something more spiritual. Such is the fallen state of man, always seeking some kind of special feeling or knowledge, some type of sign from God. This temptation goes all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. Eve was tempted by the ser serpent with the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, saying that eating of it would make her like God. Through human history, we are continually succumbing to this temptation of seeking out some kind of special knowledge to make us seem more like or to find some special knowledge of God's. We see it in the early church with the popularity of Gnosticism, and we see it today with the popularity of hyper-charismaticism. We have this deep desire, this sinful desire, to want some type of special knowledge. In these verses, we see a sign and an act of faith that had already been given to them in the Old Testament. And both of these condemn this generation's unfaithfulness and belief. The first sign, Jesus tells them, is the sign of Jonah. In other places in the New Testament, we see the sign of Jonah referenced usually in relation to the death and resurrection of Jesus. For as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the great fish, fish so would Jesus, Jesus spend three days in the grave. But as we read earlier in Jonah chapter 3, it seems that Jesus here is not trying to use the miracle of Jonah and the great fish to point to his death and resurrection. Rather, he seems to be referencing only the acts of Jonah as he preached to the people of Nineveh. As he says in verse 30, 
For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The point that is that, Je- that Jesus is making is that he, like Jonah, has come to preach repentance to this evil generation, even going so far as to compare them to the Ninevites. After this, he reminds them also of an act of faith. So we had a, the sign of Jonah and the act of faith of the queen of the south. This is a reference to the queen who came to behold the wisdom of Solomon, who traveled thousands of miles likely from Ethiopia, to see for herself the wisdom that God imparted on Solomon. This story is found in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. Her actions condemned the people of the day because while she, a Gentile, remember, had no reason to come and behold what God was doing in Israel, her heart stirred within her, and she simply desired to see the works of God seen through the riches of Solomon and his wisdom. What she found was that the riches of Solomon and his wisdom had actually been under-embellished. Not only that, but Jesus says that something better than Solomon is here. Christ Jesus, he is the thing. He is the one better than Solomon. He was the imparter of wisdom to Solomon. The God who created Solomon And the one who lavished him with riches, he is the one that is here. He is who is talking to them. He is the one who is bringing and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He is the one who is bringing healing and miracles such that none have seen. He is the greater one. One author puts it like this. In Christ, as in a great storehouse, lie all the riches of spiritual wisdom. The massive ingots of solid gold, which, when coined into creeds and doctrines, are the wealth of the church. All which we can know concerning God and man, concerning sin and righteousness and duty, concerning another life, is in him, who is the home and deep mine where truth is stored. The central fact of the universe and the perfect encyclopedia of all moral and spiritual truth is Christ, the incarnate word the lamb slain, the ascended king. Friends, he is greater than Solomon. He is greater than Jonah. And here, in his mercy, he is trying to get this group of unfaithful, doubting Jews to see that even the Gentiles in the Old Testament were able to see the power and mercy of God when it was shown to them. As we listen to this story this morning, let us not be like the men and women in this crowd. Let us not be a faithless, evil generation that seeks signs, but let us proclaim the kingdom of God by faith. Let us trust in the power of God by faith. And let us believe in the promises of our infinitely wise and holy God. Lastly, Jesus concludes his merciful teachings with two sayings about light. First, He gives them the purpose of light in verse 34, saying, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Jesus' saying here may seem simple, but it has deep, deep theological and spiritual application for our lives. Lamp sayings were commonly used by Christ 
And here, he is using it to show the difference between inner light and inner darkness. Light is for seeing. It is for revealing a path. It is for finding what is lost in the dark. Just as no one lights a lamp and puts it away, so the light of the world, Jesus Christ, did not come to be hidden away, but to shine out and push back the darkness. Second, Jesus teaches them about a spiritual reality through another saying about light. In verse 34, we read, Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The eye in these verses is a metaphor for the soul or heart of mankind. Said another way, what the eye gazes on or at reflects one's entire being. These verses hearken us right back to Christ's earlier statement about keeping the word of God by maintaining constant vigilance. The word used for healthy literally here literally means without folds referring to a single, undivided focus. A healthy eye is one that is without secret. It is not a double agent. It does not become needlessly distracted. The healthy eye is one that is focused entirely on the brilliant, shining light, the light of the revelation of God, the light of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Contrastly, the unhealthy eye is one that is distracted, always searching for a revelation, always seeking a sign that can only be found in the word of God and in Christ Jesus. But what does it look like when the eye is healthy? What does it look like to be single-minded in our pursuit of God? Listen to how, I think it is helpful if we hear how Jonathan Edwards describes his experience as a young man alone with his Bible on the banks of the Hudson. He says this, I had then, and at other times, the greatest delight in the Holy Scripture of any book whatsoever. Oftentimes, in reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I felt a harmony between something in my heart and those sweet, powerful words. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited from every sentence and such a refreshing food communicated that I could not get along in reading, often dwelling on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it, and yet almost every sentence seemed to be full of wonder. Friends, I confess that I do not often feel this way about, the, about God's word. I am often distracted and cold-hearted, feeling as though it is a chore to sit at the feet of my Savior and read what he has written in his word. Christians, let us strive to gaze at the light of Scripture, at the light of our Savior, so that we might never be distracted by the works of the flesh and desire further signs in our unbelief. Let us look upon, gaze upon the face of Jesus and have faith that he is for us, not against us. As the Apostle Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, Colossians 3.16. And for those of you that have not placed your trust in Christ, who have not fixed your eyes on the merciful face of Jesus, I plead with you again, do not let this moment pass. Look to the power. Please come find me or a member of Covenant Hope, and we would be glad to share the good news of Jesus with you this morning. Look to the power of the finger of God seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As one author puts it, the finger of God points you to the kingdom of God through faith in the Son of God, so you might escape the wrath of God. Before we pray together, I wanted to end, since this is a New Year's Eve service, with some New Year's resolutions for us all. First, this year, let us be a people marked by prayer who regularly confess our sins. Second, let us be a people marked by the love of the word of God. And third, let us be a people who are intensely focused on the face of Jesus, for he is our light, our shepherd, our savior. While these challenges are basic, we must remember that the church thrives most when we are focused on the fundamentals and not distracted by seeking greater signs. For there is no sign greater than Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the word incarnate that you sent to die in our place so that we may be resurrected on the last days. Lord, you are a good God. You are merciful to give us your word. You are the author and uh, worker of all good in our lives. Lord, let us trust you. Let us not look and be distracted by other signs, but let us gaze upon the holy, bright face of Jesus and be in love with him. In your name we pray. Amen.